So good evening everybody and welcome to tonight's uh, webcast and podcast on property management. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Mark Hoffman, the um, CEO, MD, owner of APC Training Limited. Um, we're going to be talking about the property management competency tonight. We're going to be looking at the RSES guidance notes, remedies for non-payment of rent, things like CRA, service charges, assignments, sublettings and dilapidations. Uh, as I explained earlier, I wanted to uh, use this as an opportunity really to um, throw out some questions and answers on the property management competency. Um, because of course all you guys are experts in property management, so please do feel free to unmute yourselves, answer questions, uh, participate. Um, it's not a, a mock interview, it's not, you know, this is not a test. It's just about going through some uh, typical questions and trying to point you in the right direction for how to answer them, basically. So firstly, I just wanted to explain exactly what the property management competency uh, actually covers. So the competency covers all aspects of day-to-day -day functions associated with property management, that is both commercial and residential. It includes issues relating to works, health and safety, landlord and tenant relationships and service charges. In general, any matter associated with the smooth running of a property. Level one. This is basic knowledge and understanding of the property management competency. You are required to demonstrate knowledge and understanding of property management and the relationship between owner and occupier. Understand the key factors determining the landlord and tenant relationship in relation to the running of a property. Understand key lease terms and their implications to property management. And understand how disputes and problematical issues can be resolved and to be able to prioritise key tasks. Level two in property management. Apply the principles of property management to provide solutions to issues affecting both owners and occupiers of real estate. Managing property from both a landlord and tenant perspective and understand the key factors from each viewpoint. Understanding legal requirements associated with multi-let property and or managed property. Understanding property management accounting principles from the landlord and tenant perspective and also the requirements of law and the RICS and understanding courses of action in relation to breaches of lease by the landlord and or the tenant. Finally, level three, provide evidence of reasoned advice. That is the key phrase, reasoned advice, including the preparation and presentation of reports in relation to property management, participating in all aspects of property management, including uh, works, emergency reactive maintenance, planned programs, budgets, etc. Applying your, your negotiation, communication and business skills in relation to contentious issues with both landlord and tenant and participating in issues such as applications for license to assign or for works together with the associated legal frameworks. 
You may, of course, be familiar. In fact, I hope you are familiar, of course, with the RICS guidance note, Commercial Property Management in England and Wales. This you should make reference to in level one in your summary of experience, the guidance note. And it states that the property manager has two core duties and the application of the following points differs between multi-let and single-let properties. The collection of rent, service charge and other sums owing by the occupiers to the landlord from the occupiers and, and B, the management of the property. Now, I'm not going to go into uh, and read out what the guidance note says on everything. For example, collection of money, client accounts, etc. But I do recommend that you read it and understand it thoroughly prior to your assessment. So we begin, therefore, with one of the most common questions, the remedies for non-payment of rent. Now, I want to sort of point out at this, at this stage that we're in a, a rather unusual um, time when dealing with remedies for non-payment of rent, because, of course, you may well be familiar with this, but there has been this global pandemic which has affected many businesses across the world and has affected the relationship between landlord and tenant. As a result of the Coronavirus Act of 2020, there were certain uh, restrictions placed on landlords to prevent the um, uh, forcing of tenants to pay rent in response to the pandemic and the lockdown, etc., etc. So what we have to do is we have to think carefully about how we deal with sort of pre-coronavirus act and post-coronavirus act. Because, of course, what you can't do is in the interview, and the assessors won't permit you, is to simply say, well, there's nothing we can do because there's a moratorium. So let me ask you this. Let me throw the question to the group. You receive an email or a phone call, and, and I'm talking about post-coronavirus. So that let's just assume that there's no restrictions okay you can you can do anything a tenant contacts you and says either by phone or email dear property manager i regret to inform you that we will not be in a position to pay our rent this quarter due to um the loss of business accounts um end and the arrears are starting to accumulate Somebody talk me through the, what is available to you as a property manager to start to recover those arrears. Over to you. Start from the beginning. Start from the easiest. Start from the obvious. And then we end up in the last case, the worst case scenario. Would you not arrange a meeting with the tenant to find out why they can't pay if they can pay an amount and work out payment plan? Yes. So that is absolutely the first thing to do. You make contact with them because you don't know until you've actually spoken to the tenant um, what the scenario is because until you do that, 
um, you can't then advise your clients. So if they say, I'm terribly sorry, you know, we, we've, we've had to change bank, uh, we've had to change banks, um, and it's going to take about six weeks for the new account to be set up. So therefore, we will be able to pay the full rent in six weeks time, but we would appreciate uh, a six week grace period. You might turn around to your client and say, look, let's not do anything. Um, I, I have uh, seen evidence that they are opening a new business account or whatever. So let's monitor the situation and do nothing. Now, you correctly also mentioned going to see the tenant. Why do you think it is important to actually go and see the tenant, actually go and meet them? What, what is that going to tell you? Yes, absolutely. Whether they are trading from the unit. Now, if it transpires that they're not trading from the unit, how is that going to impact on your recommendation? What are you not going to do? Not recommend that it's just kind of left um, and ignored. It's probably not a good sign if they have a unit that they're not using. Okay, but think about think about the options that are available to you to recover arrears, okay? And if the unit isn't trading, what might you be prevented from doing? Recovering through crop? Correct. Very good. You wouldn't send the enforcement agents in if you know that the unit isn't trading. So therefore, you could say to your client, we've been to see the premises, it's all shut, it's all, it's all, shut. It's all boarded up, you know, the shutters are down, there's no, there's no stock in there. Fine, there's no point in crying them. But if you go and see them, and they are trading, and you go and see the, the MD or the, the CFO, what else might you be able to gauge from that meeting or that inspection of the premises? Maybe how well they're trading. Yeah, exactly. So whether it's a, a shop or an office or a warehouse or a distribution unit or an industrial, it, it doesn't matter. You should be able to gauge. Um, and of course, it's not always possible, but you should be able to gauge how well they are actually doing. You know, are there any customers? Are there staff manning the desks? Are the shelves in the, distrib in, in the warehouse full? Is there other orders coming in? You know, that sort of thing. So, as I said, it's not a definitive, yes, they're doing well, no, they're not doing well, but at least it gives you some sort of guide. So, therefore, make contact with the tenant. So, there, uh, 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 and then if you've, if you've attempted to make contact with the tenant and there's no response, okay, and we're now kind of, I don't know, two, three, four weeks beyond the quarter day. What's the first thing you're going to do or check to get some of that money back for your client? Is there a rent deposit? Yes. Check to see if there's a rent deposit. Why? Why would you first of all check to see if there's a rent deposit? Because we're holding some money... Uh, against the tenant. Correct. Uh, so therefore, it's the easiest way, is it not, to actually say to the client, well, I've got your money. 
because I've just simply taken it out of the rent deposit account. So therefore you check to see if there is a rent deposit. How do you know if there is a rent deposit? It should be a separate rent deposit account in their name. Correct. Okay. So on the basis that there is a, uh, a rent deposit deed um, or whatever you want to call it, um, that will then determine whether or not uh, you can draw down on the rent deposit. Generally speaking, what does the rent deposit though actually request the tenant to do? Correct. So you might argue, well, what's the point of drawing down on the rent deposit if they've just then got to top it up? If they can't, um, if they can't pay the rent, they can't top up the rent deposit. Anyway, okay. Next, what is the next thing that you might want to check? If there's a guarantor. Correct. So how would you check to see if there's a guarantor? Check the lease. Check the lease. Now, if there is a guarantor, how might you pursue a guarantor for non-payment of rent? Section 17 notice? Of the... <laughs> I knew you were going to have <laughs> Come on, you know, you know the answer. Yes, the Landlord and Tenant Covenants Act of 1995. When are you permitted to pursue a guarantor for non-payment of rent within what period of time? Six months. Six months, okay. If there is a guarantor on the lease, if you are permitted to pursue them under section 17, and if they then pay off the arrears, what does it entitle that guarantor to do? Does it entitle them to have any legal hold over that property? They've just paid off the arrears. They're acting as a guarantor. They have the right to then take an overriding lease of that property. Okay. Sticking with that theme, the guarantor, you correctly refer to the Landlord and Tenant Covenants Act of 1995. What did that replace? The old leases. What within the old leases specifically did it replace? Um, that if um, a lease is assigned, then the um, assignor was still kind of on the hook for problems. And what is that called? What do you mean, sorry? What is it called when... Uh, an original tenant is on the hook for the entirety. Authorised guarantor agreement. Mm, that's what the fifty. Okay. That's sorry. That's what the ninety five act brought in. But what okay, what did it replace? So pre ninety ninety five, if a tenant, say MNS takes a, sorry takes a ninety five year lease from nineteen eighty, um, they are on the hook for the entirety of that lease. What is that known as? It's three words. Privity of 
Con- Good. Contract. Okay. So, therefore, pre-1995, the tenants were on the hook, come what may. So, you know, you could find a tenant from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Of course, they may not be in existence anymore, but they are technically responsible for the arrears. What did the... You, 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 somebody correctly mentioned it. The, the 1995 Landlord and Tenant Covenants Act brought in an authorised guarantee agreement. And what is the difference between an authorised guarantee agreement and what was privity of contract? I think an argo can only be requested if it's reasonable to, to, to request it. Um, Whereas is privity... Is that, I don't know, but is that, um, that's kind of automatic? Yeah, well, yes, it was automatic, that's true. Um, I understand what you're saying, but, but basically, the authorised guarantee agreement has to be agreed between the landlord and the tenant, yeah? So, what will happen is, is that there is, and, and, and the, the answer to the question was, it only relates to one assignment, So let's say, for example, that you buy a commercial property investment let to Sainsbury. And they've got a 15-year lease, no breaks. Lovely, great covenant, and um, they uh, are paying their rent, no problems at all. And then they apply to you to assign their lease. Within the lease itself, there will be provision for an authorised guarantee agreement. And that will say that the tenant, i.e. Sainsbury, is only permitted to assign their lease to a covenant of equal standing to Sainsbury. Because otherwise, if it didn't, Sainsbury could let it to Joe Bloggs & Co. Joe Bloggs & Co. could assign it to Mark Hoffman & Co., And then all of a sudden, you've lost Sainsbury, you've got Joe Bloggs as the guarantor, and Mark Hoffman as your your assignee, and you've lost that covenant. So therefore, landlords will want to protect themselves as far as the authorised guarantee agreement is concerned. Is everyone clear on that? Does everyone understand that principle? Yeah. Good. Okay, so we've covered the first two. We've covered uh, drawing down on the rent deposit, guarantors. What's next? What's next? So so there's no rent deposit. There's no guarantor. We've got some arrears. What's next? Maybe a legal letter. Okay, a legal letter. Do you mean a letter before action? And they call it a seven-day letter. Okay. So talk me through that. What is what is that? I've actually never had to instruct <laughs> Okay, you can't say that in the interview, though. Um, okay. So, but, but it, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that not in response, though, to the pandemic to effectively um, replicate a statutory demand? Yeah, I think it is. Okay. 
So therefore, what I think... I never, I never had a sound one before the pandemic. So yeah. So what I think this is, is this is something which is less binding, less threatening than a statutory demand, but basically says to the tenants, look, we can't actually kick you out, but we're putting you on notice that you owe us this money. That is what I think this um, this this does. So can somebody tell me, because as I said right at the beginning, we're looking at sort of um, the non-pandemic times. What is a statutory demand and when would you use it? What is a statutory demand and when would you use it? Is that the winding up one? Yes, it is. It's exactly it. Yes. It is the first step in the winding up process. Okay. So then we've got stat demands. So now we're coming to the point where we've, we've exhausted all our options and we need to take a more um, aggressive line here. Non-payment of rent. Ultimately, what can you do? Okay, so... What does CRA stand for? Commercial Rent Arrears Recovery. <clears throat> okay. And Commercial Rent Arrears Recovery is, of course, um, a, uh, a process whereby the bailiffs or the enforcement agents, officers, whatever you want to call them, um, will be uh, sent to the premises effectively to collect uh, goods to the value of the debt. Okay. And there's, of course, a seven day letter that's sent, which says, if you haven't paid your arrears in seven days, we're sending the enforcement agents down. Okay. Can somebody tell me, is there a way of shortening that seven day period? Because if I got a letter, let's say I've got a warehouse or a shop or something. If I get a letter, say, right, the bailiffs are coming in seven days. I've got seven days to clear everything out or hide it, or close the shutters up, or do something. So if I thought that might happen as a property manager, is there anything I can do to prevent that? Is there anything I can do to prevent that? Could I, could I reduce that seven-day period at all? The answer is yes, I could. I could go to court and get a court order to reduce that seven days to an, an appropriate timescale. So, for example, if you can demonstrate to the court that you've tried to crawl this tenant on numerous occasions and each time you've done so, they have closed it up, they've put the shutters down, you know, they've cleared out all the stock and then, then you find out that they're still trading then you may be able to get a court order to, to, to reduce that seven-day warning so they can't do it again. Okay. Can somebody tell me, therefore, what is it that the enforcement agent is actually permitted to seize? So they, they've served their seven-day warning, no response. They go down, 
and they make an inventory of, of the goods within the, the property. What is it actually that they are allowed to take, physically take from that property? Is it goods that aren't essential to the running of the business? So to the equal value of the debt owed? Um, okay, so you say that's not essential to the running of the business. So let's say, for example, that your tenant is a, is a sweet shop. Um, and they have in their, in their shop, they've got a till and they've got shelves full of sweets. Could they take the sweets? No. Does anybody else have any views as to whether or not an enforcement agent can take stock? I think they can. Does it, yeah, does it depend on the perishable goods you wouldn't take, like sweets, but if they, had, if they were selling TVs or something like Correct, that. correct, exactly right. So they can take stock, but, not, but non-perishable items, because, of course, you, they then have little or no value. Um, but yes, if it was a you know, a, an electronics shop, for example, then yes, it's, it's items that belong to the tenant that have a value on their balance sheet. So yes, they can take stock, but it depends on what that stock actually is. Um, okay, so they also have to um, be able to um, remove the goods without breaching the peace. So therefore, they're not allowed to forcibly enter the premises. Um, and as I said, the items that they are allowed to take have to belong to the tenant. In other words, if there was something which was on a higher purchase agreement, leased to the business or whatever, that doesn't belong to the tenant, it cannot then be seized. Okay. And then finally, we've tried everything. We've tried to speak to them. We've tried to visit them. We've tried to crawl them. We've sent them stat demands. They've been ignored. We want the unit back. Then what do we do? Forfeiture. Forfeiture, yes. How do we know if we can forfeit the lease? It will say in the, in, it will say in the lease whether you can or not. Correct, there will be what's known as a forfeiture clause, which will say what? What will it typically say? The grounds that the landlord can take the unit yeah, back under. Exactly. So it will say something like the landlord is permitted to forfeit the lease by taking walking possession if the rent remains outstanding for a minimum of 21 days or whatever it is. Simple as that. And you are then permitted to forfeit the lease. Okay, so here's an interesting question. How does forfeiture for non-payment of rent differ from forfeiture for breach of repairing obligation or indeed breach of any other obligation? Do you have to um, 
go to court. Yes. Yeah. And do what? Survey. Section one four six notice. Of the law of. Uh, nine, is it nineteen twenty five? Yes, the law of property act. Okay, good. <laughs> so, um, you go to court. You serve a section one twenty five, and how long? For this is this is for breach of repairing obligation as opposed to non-payment of rent. And how long does the tenant have to uh, remedy the breach? We've got a current one and it just says a reasonable time period. Yeah, but it depends on the breach. Okay. So it, it depends on... Um, well, it depends on a lot of things. But specifically, Section 125 will permit the tenant six months to remedy the breach. Okay? Um, because then, I mean, obviously I don't know the circumstances, but then it calls into question, well, what's the definition of reasonable? They'll argue that reasonable is, you know, the tenant will argue it's longer. Um, so, so generally speaking, they have six months to remedy the breach. But for non-payment of rent, if the rent is outstanding for 21 days, you can take in, take walk in possession, change the locks. The lease is forfeited. Okay. Everyone clear on the remedies for non-payment of rent? We also talked, or we didn't talk, but there is, of course, the option for a payment plan. Now, this, of course, is something which is very... Uh, common at the moment and uh, we were discussing it um, this afternoon actually uh, about payment plans as a way of remedying but it's not really a remedy it's more of a solution to recover some of the arrears but you would what, what you'd want to do is you'd want to check before you actually advise the client about the opportunities for remedies, you want to check the covenant strength of the tenant. Why do you think it's important to check the covenant strength of the tenant before making a, uh, before making a recommendation for the remedy for non-payment of rent? Because if you were to do a payment, like a repayment plan over say 18 months, but their covenant strength was low, and they might not still be in business in 18 months. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, you, if you're talking to a tenant, which is a single branch, you know, business that has been forced to close for, you know, the best part of two years, um, where they, you know, have very li limited stock, um, clearly from their uh, accounts, you know, turnover is substantially down, They've used all the, the, the loans and the, the guarantees from the government and, and, you know, there really isn't a sensible solution. You know, what is the point of a payment plan? Do you see that there is, you know, depending on the business plan, there will be an opportunity potentially to, um, to recover, but is it too far gone? So you've got to, you've got to look at their accounts, their audited account and, and, and their management accounts. Why do you think it's important 
to look at both the audited and the management accounts. This is more accounting principles and procedures, but it's still relevant to this. Why do you think it's important to look at the management accounts as well as the audited accounts? Generally, the audited accounts are kind of out of date. Mm. Yeah. In, um, in theory, if you look at a set of audited accounts, they might be a year and a half or a year out of date because you, re- you, you submit your accounts nine months after the year end and then it's however long it takes to prepare them or whatever. So you could be looking at sort of pre-coronavirus, if you, if, if you like, whereas the management accounts will give you a much better, clearer um, view on how the business is doing on a monthly or quarterly basis. Okay, so let us move on. Obviously, I'll be sending you all these notes, so you don't need to um, write anything down. Okay, service charges. Calculating the service charge apportionment and corresponding budget is a key duty of the property manager and needs to be handled with care. Occupiers will be anxious to ensure that the service charge budget is appropriate in its amount and allocation. Landlords will want to ensure their obligations under the occupational leases are fulfilled and the property is properly maintained. Service charges can be the cause of significant friction between occupiers and landlords, some of you may have experienced yourselves, which means that the property manager will need to take particular care to communicate in a clear and transparent manner. The property manager should keep monies collected as part of the service charge in a separate service charge account with transparent records for all income and expenditure. The second edition of the RICS Code of Practice, service charges in commercial property goes into more detail on this. So the new RICS Professional Statement Service Charges in Commercial Property The stated aims are to improve general standards and promote best practice, uniformity, transparency, sorry, fairness and transparency in the management and administration of services of service charges in commercial property and to reduce the causes of disputes and to provide guidance on the resolution of disputes if they arise. The key change from the current regime is the inclusion of nine mandatory obligations for RICS members and regulated firms. The mandatory obligations include the following. Owners and managers must seek to recover no more than 100% of the proper and actual costs of the provision or supply of the services. Service charge budgets must be issued annually to all tenants. A signed statement showing a true and accurate record of the actual expenditure constituting the service charge must be provided annually to all tenants. All interest earned on service charge accounts must be credited to the service charge account after appropriate deductions such as bank charges, tax, etc. have been made. In addition to the mandatory requirements, the statement contains 24 core principles. The RICS has acknowledged that in rare circumstances, strict compliance with these 
might not always be possible. However, the core principle should only be departed from where there is a good, justifiable reason to do so. A selection of some of the core principles are set out below. All costs should be transparent so that the parties are aware of how they are made up. The basis and method of apportionment of costs should be demonstrably fair and reasonable. When issuing statements of accounts and or certifying expenditure, managers should do so in a non-partisan spirit, acting as experts. In addition to the manager's certificate, annual statements of expenditure should be supported by an independent review of the service charge accounts. The manager should procure quality service standards to ensure that value for money is achieved at all times. The aim here is to achieve effective value for money service rather than merely the lowest price. Now, let's face it, management fees are, of course, the most important thing. But the service charge code now gives specific guidance as to how property managers should charge their clients. Because, of course, this is recoverable through the service charge. It is important that details of the property manager's fee, such as the amount, when and how it's payable, and the invoicing and reporting processes are made clear to the landlord. RICS guidance in relation to management fees is set out in the RICS Code of Practice, Service Charges and Commercial Property, which requires that fees are set on a fixed price basis rather than being calculated as a percentage of expenditure. Percentage is no longer appropriate and is considered to be a disincentive to the delivery of value for money the management fee should be a fixed fee subject to annual review or indexation. It is recognised that many leases refer to the management fee as a percentage of the total service charge or contain a percentage cap. This guide cannot override the terms agreed between the parties and recorded in the lease. So this is a, a this is a guide. But of course, the service the the, the Service charges that you deal with may well be specified in the lease and the service charge code is not designed to override that. The lease takes precedent. For the complete text of this clause, refer to section 1.3 of the RICS Code of Practice Service Charges of Commercial Property. It's worth noting here that the code expressly states that the cost of collecting the rent should be excluded from the service charge management fee. Mark, can I ask a quick question on that? Yes. So on the management cap, yeah. it says like a cap on management fees. Do they say anything about what fees are included? Because obviously you've got staff costs, um, like FM fees. No, so... Fees. Is it just the pure management fees or is it open to interpretation? No, it's it's purely the management fees. In other words, okay. that the fees that... that your organisation or the managing agents will charge because I'm sure that that um, so what used to happen is is that when it was uh, when management fees were linked to service charge um, the, the the managing agents of course were under no uh, obligation or no um, there, there, there was no uh, benefit in keeping that service charge low because of course that affected the management fees 
So in seeking to improve the relationship between landlords and tenants, this uh, code of practice basically says that, um, you know, we're not going to do it on the service or, or, on, uh, as a percentage of service charge because we want to try and keep that service charge as low as possible. So it's actually based on a fixed, fixed price based on the amount of work we are doing that is justifiable for you as the tenants to contribute to it. I hope that answers that question. Thank you. Um, another very common subject when dealing with property management, and if you refer to your summary of experience, is assignments and sublettings. So, firstly, um, well, before we go on to that, yeah, firstly, can somebody tell me what is the difference between an assignment and a subletting? Um, as an assignment, when you literally, they take over the lease from you, whereas subletting is, they would take a lease from you, so they would be paying you rent, whereas if yeah. it's an assignment, then they're paying their land yeah. rent. So in an, with an assignment, um, who is the contractual relationship with? Who is it between? The landlord. And the... Assign. 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 Right, okay. And what about subletting? The tenant stays Correct. The tenant, so the tenant becomes a landlord. Yeah, there. exactly right. So with an assignment... Tenant A, i.e. APC training, says to tenant B, here is the lease. It's over to you now. I'm done. And tenant B then pays their rent to the landlord. Okay, They are, to all intents and purposes, the tenant. But with a subletting, the contractual relationship is between the tenant and the landlord. And the subtenant pays the rent to the tenant who pays it to the landlord. Can somebody tell me why would you recommend a, that a, a tenant sublets rather than assigns? If the person they are subletting to is not as good of a covenant? Uh, yes, yes, that could be, that could be one. Why else might a tenant prefer to sublet rather than assign? If they were interested in taking back the, the yes. units, so say they could have their uh, subtenant on a shorter lease and yep. they take yeah. More flexibility. And, and what's the final they reason? They could get a higher rent. Yeah, exactly. If the market rent is higher than the passing rent, there will be created what's known as a... Profit rent. Profit rent. And therefore, you would recommend a subletting rather than an assignment. So firstly, when you are approached by the tenant, you check the lease, the alienation provisions. Is it permitted? Um, I, I genuinely have known, um, not necessarily managing agents, but just agents in general, um, you know, make applications to assign leases and sublet and, and uh, you know, they've, they've marketed it and they've found this tenant 
without actually bothering to check in the lease whether assignment or subletting is permitted, which can be quite embarrassing. So normally, assignment is permitted with landlord's consent not to be unreasonably withheld or delayed. With a subletting, normally subletting of the whole is normally permitted, not part. So again, just double check the uh, alienation provisions. So read the lease. Now, in your summary of experience, if you have made reference to experience of dealing with assignments and sublettings, make sure that you know the timeline. Read the lease. Get an undertaking for your costs from the assignee. This was mentioned earlier, which is, which is correct. What is the covenant strength of the proposed assignor or subtenant? What's the proposed rent? Is it more than, same as, or less than the market rent? The interesting thing is, is that, um, just going back to reading the lease, the alienation provisions may well state uh, the, the, the terms upon which a subletting might be permitted. So, for example, it might say that you can only sublet at the passing rent. Now, that could be over-renting, or it could be um, under-rented. So it just depends. But if you can only sublet at the passing rent, that may require the payment of a premium. Um, are there reasonable grounds to refuse consent? So when you're dealing with a, um, uh, an assignment, can somebody tell me what would be a reasonable ground to refuse consent? If that covenant strength isn't as good as the... Yeah. Yep, yep, covenant strength. Anything else? Could it be on the use? Yes, or absolutely, yes. If the use is uh, contrary to landlord's uh, tenant mix, uh, of course, for illegal purposes and immoral purposes, etc., etc. And, of course, if the proposed assignee breaches planning, um, you know, uh, th then, of course, that's grounds to, uh, to refuse consent. Um, so, yeah, assuming, therefore, that it's permitted, the landlord and tenant at 1988 means that you have to deal with the application promptly. So, in your organisation, what do you consider to be a prompt uh, timescale to respond to a licence or to an application to assign a lease? Well, you tell me. I mean, if you get a, um, an application to assign, generally speaking, how, how quickly do you, do, do you have any guidance as to how quickly you should respond? Or is it just, just do it as quickly uh, as possible? If my boss asks me, I'm sure <laughs> I could um, tell them that it's in P2, but uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's seven days. Anybody, anybody got any other answers? Within two weeks. Yeah, I mean, again, it very much depends. Um, as, as I understand it, the ATA Act simply refers to a reasonable timescale to respond. And I think it's then up to each individual managing agent to decide what is reasonable. Um, that's that's my, my understanding of the, uh, the subject. Um, okay, handling clients' money. 
As managing agents, of course, a key role is the collection and management of sums owing by occupiers relating to rent, service charge, insurance, and any other sums due under the lease. It's important that a property manager has an established process in place to arrange for the efficient collection of these monies. This means that the property manager will have a thorough understanding of the relationship between landlord, occupier, and other occupiers in the building. Obtain wherever possible from the landlord copies of all relevant documents, leases, licenses, and so on. Understand from those documents the payment obligations, maintain a database of the occupiers and other occupiers to record the financial position with each of them. Make sure the payment process is clear so that no occupier can argue the amount due or the time of payment is not known. Have a mechanism in place to notify of any default in payment or a dispute over any payment and promptly report this to the landlord in the manner agreed about such default. Have a process in place to pursue occupiers with defaults in payments. Have arrangements in place to forward sums collected, less deductions, for example, service charge onto the landlord. The landlord will want these sums to be forwarded as quickly as possible. And report to the landlord and the reconciliation of the amount actually paid and the amount collected. Please refer to Rule 8, the Rules of Conduct for Firms, the original Rules of Conduct for Firms, which uh, deals with handling clients' money. Most importantly, a firm shall ensure that they hold clients' money in one or more client bank accounts separate from all other monies. Client money should be available on demand. The bank account is correctly titled to include the name of the firm and the word client to distinguish the account from an office or any other account. If it is a discrete account, the name of the client should be included in the account title. They have obtained written confirmation from the bank of the client account conditions. They've advised clients in writing of the bank account details, the account name, uh, name and address of the bank and agree the terms of the account handling, including arrangements for interest and charges. And they've obtained written consent from their client if the firm is to retain interest. The next subject as we come towards the end of this session is dilapidations. What is the purpose of dilapidations? You know, this is a question that I often get asked about, you know, what is the difference in, in investment between, you know, residential and commercial? You know, why, why invest in, in, in commercial as opposed to residential? Well, one of the reasons is dilapidations which entitles the landlord to get the property back in the same condition as it, as it was handed over to the tenant. And that could be many years later. You know, if a tenant takes a lease of 20 years and in 20 years time, the lease expires, they have to hand it back in the same condition as it was handed over to the tenant. So therefore, first of all, you have to review the repairing obligations in the lease to see if it's a full repairing lease. The lease would also confirm if there's a schedule of conditions. So if your tenant is taking a property which is in poor condition, the tenant will say, I want to record this condition so they are not made to put it back to a condition better than when they signed the lease. And there is normally a written record and a photographic record. If a schedule of dilapidations is served, it can be negotiated by the tenant 
Once agreed, the tenant could either do the works themselves or pay an agreed amount for the landlord to do the work. There are three forms of schedules of dilapidations. Interim, where there's at least three years remaining on the lease and the lease has to be for a minimum of seven years. Terminal, served within the last three years and final at the lease expiry or after the tenant has vacated the property. And what is it? What is that claim for dilapidations that, that the landlord can um, can claim for? You know, can they just make up a figure? Of course, it's based on the cost of the works or the diminution in value in accordance with Section 18 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1927. The diminution in value, the decrease in value, if you like, as a result of the wear and tear of the tenant having been in occupation. Finally, and probably not a subject that we want to really talk about, but is something, of course, that is so sadly relevant is insolvency and dealing with tenants that are going into administration and receivership. The difference between the two. With administration, an administrator can be appointed by the company, the creditors or the bank. An administrator deals with the assets of a company over an agreed timescale. That timescale is known as a moratorium. The, di the directors of the company remain in office, but they have no power. If the company in administration continues to pay rent, it can be claimed as a cost of the administration. Receivership. The law of property at receiver is appointed to sell off the assets of the business to pay off the debts. And then finally, we have the CVA, the, the company voluntary administration. A company can enter into a CVA where, when they are insolvent, but they believe the business has a future and can continue trading. The company can agree a deal with its creditors to pay back a percentage of the debt as long as at least 75% of the creditors agree. Sorry, is receivership and liquidation the same thing? Is receivership and liquidation? Yes, yes, Okay. yes. So you've got administration and then you've got receivership stroke liquidation. Okay, thank you. So if the tenant becomes insolvent, what do you do? You check the lease. Is there a rent deposit to draw down? Are there any guarantors to pursue? Exactly the same as we do for all arrears. Contact the administrator and register a claim for arrears. Make sure the property is secure. Inform the insurers. You cannot accept the keys back as this will constitute a surrender of the lease. However, you can take the keys back to ensure the property is locked and secure as long as you confirm in writing that this is for the purpose of security and does not constitute a surrender of the lease. We then have a list of Q&As, most of which we've covered this evening, but I'll let you work through those at your own leisure. And that, my friends, is property management. That concludes, therefore, the podcast on property management. If you require further information, please see the website www.apc-training.co.uk.